This is an ABC podcast. Good plan. Good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. My name is Emma Race and this week we are breaking with the usual game plan. The team are taking a bye this week to regroup, not to rebuild. And as a special treat, we have a story for you. It comes from an anthology of footy stories called From the Outer, Footy Like You've Never Heard It. The book is one that was edited by Alicia Sometimes and Nicole Hayes, and it plays an essential part in the Outer Sanctum's origin story. You may have heard us speak of it from time to time. Of the many extraordinary stories featured in the book, today we bring you a story from Miriam Sved. Miriam is a writer and editor whose first novel, Game Day, was set in the world of AFL football. Her new novel, A Universe of Sufficient Size, is a story about history, family and mathematics, and it's been shortlisted for the Colin Roderick Award. She is also a co-editor of the recent anthology, Me Too, Stories from the Australian Movement. Miriam lives in Melbourne with her wife and her daughter. Today, Lucy Race reads Rookie by Miriam Sved, a story set in a time long ago when there was only one Daisy playing on our screens and he played for Collingwood. Enjoy Rookie and we will be back with you next week. Go footy. Rookie by Miriam Sved. My friend had come to my apartment to watch the game. I'd invited her over. I may have had motives unrelated to football. In fact, I'd never had a motive related to football in my life. It was 2005 and Collingwood were doing badly. I'd stretched my culinary and housekeeping skills. There was something I optimistically called a stir-fry. I lived alone and regularly ate breakfast cereal for dinner. I might have even bought flowers. The game went as poorly as expected and I was as oblivious as ever. I knew it was late in the season and that Collingwood needed a win, maybe a big win. In the last week I'd tried, in a half-assed way, to absorb some of the particles of AFL floating everywhere in the Victorian atmosphere. Commentators were saying things like, make or break. Make what? Break what? I knew what a handball was and the difference between a goal and a behind. At some stage in the evening, I left the living room And when I came back, my friend was gone. I found her outside on my balcony. We didn't really have balconies, but those of us who lived in the small apartment block maintained a shared delusion about the walkways that ran in front of the building. Pot plants were placed, in some cases deck chairs. We carefully averted our eyes and scuttled slightly when we had to walk through someone else's space. She was sitting on the ground back against the wall, smoking, which she'd given up. One of my neighbours, a burly man with a huge motorbike and surprisingly inaudible voice, was sitting nearby on his balcony, but we all maintained the fiction of privacy. It was awkward. I sat down next to her and said something I hoped was appropriate about the game, how much it sucked that Collingwood were doing badly. She didn't reply, unusual, and I realised she was crying, or had been crying, not in a proper committed way. She'd clearly been trying to curb it, and was trying harder now, 
but there was an escapee tear at the corner of her eye, and she did that tough back-of-the-hand face swipe and pulled on her cigarette. I have always liked women who fall somewhere on the masculine side of gender identity. Tomboys, women not afraid of the word butch. Maybe that had to do with why. Since I'd moved to Melbourne a few years earlier, I'd fallen for a string of them who were more or less obsessed with footy. There was the downy crew-cut girl who lived in Geelong. She worked at a bank and played for the local women's team. She was skinny as a rake, but seemed to subsist on Mars bars, and she would come over to my share house, all bruised up, hopped up on the exercise and sugar, and endearingly proud of the bruises. There was a funny, small, intense woman, another Pies supporter. I dated her around the time of Collingwood's bad grand final defeat. Any fans will know the year and won't need to be reminded of the score. She took me to meet her friends and to watch the big game at her favourite bar in Collingwood naturally and over the course of the disaster got so inebriated that afterwards one of the friends had to help me peel her off a lamppost. So I had some preparation for the tears, although no understanding of them. These men who ran around chasing a ball, mostly pretty obnoxious men judging from the headlines, I never read beyond the headlines, the thing I couldn't grasp was, what does it have to do with you? There wasn't, still isn't, so much as one openly gay player in the whole league, and the only women granted some kind of peripheral belonging back then, the wags, were like a different species. Any overlap in the Venn diagram of us and football seemed wishful and somehow self-abasing. I didn't say any of that. I did some stilted shoulder patting and went back inside, left her to it. I fancied her a lot. Two years later we were living together, and suddenly my home life revolved around the season. She dragged me to games, which wasn't completely new. I'd been dragged to games before, and being the object of two friends' recruitment drives. I figured it was part of the social contract down here. When someone clueless and uninitiated moves to Victoria, you have to try and get them on side for your team. A kind of friendly, statewide pyramid scheme. I'd briefly been a nominal Carlton supporter for one friend, and a cat for another. I'd appreciated the sheer spectacle of games at the MCG. I liked to watch the umpires, so skilled at running backwards. The first footballer who properly caught my attention, and in this I'm sure I'm not alone, was Dale Daisy Thomas. He was attention-grabbing, a gravity-defying streak of hair. He debuted in 2006 against the Crows, and by his second flying mark he pretty much ruled the world. We watched him and Mick Malthouse in interviews afterwards. I didn't expect Daisy to be so shy, so skinless and young. The thing I started to appreciate is that part of the appeal of footy, maybe any sport, is stories. The story of an artless country boy transfigured by speed and vertical leap, of a surly old coach, flashes of charismatic warmth. You could see people following him into a cult who likes to blood his players early. Daisy weighed 68 kilos, about the same as me. He had twiggy, breakable-looking limbs, and in front of the camera he gulped and twitched like a fish. His body on the field had its own articulate self-belief. Good stories need the unexpected confluence of disparate elements, a thing we know in a place we don't expect to find it. Daisy was my gateway narrative into footy, and he opened neatly into other, bigger stories. It was 2006, a year of surprising and, in hindsight, Brilliant team building for Collingwood. Lots of fans had gone nuts when the club used one of its highest draft picks on a lanky boy with more form in basketball than footy. 
But we'd seen Scott Pendlebury play and knew better. He's a gun. A gun, I learnt, was the best thing to be. Something pointed at the opposition and fired. It was towards the end of Nathan Buckley's playing career. He still captained the team, another narrative gem. The first time the tag warrior didn't seem to me like fatuous hyperbole. Face like a battering ram, issuing commands to the younger boys on the field with messianic authority, another one you'd follow into a cult. He'd left the Brisbane Bears in search of the premiership that had eluded him over a decade-long career, and now his hammies were a ticking bomb, one or maybe two seasons left in them. The crusade was irresistible. I was also learning how other kinds of stories could be needed into and out of football. Collingwood was one of the founding Victorian clubs, 1892, as my new Guernsey declared. It was formed in opposition to the more affluent suburban clubs and nicknamed the Purloiners by rivals. The vertical black and white stripes were meant to represent prison bars, an intimidation tactic maybe, but I preferred to see it as a middle finger to the snobby establishment. The boys who played in the early years came from one of the roughest bits of Melbourne. Football was a route to respect, maybe a better life, maybe just a chance to square up to privilege on even ground. Is it naive to look for this founding spirit in the machinations of the modern professional game with its forensic team building and six-figure salaries? Probably, but the narrative around the modern club, at least its supporter base, is not so different, despite the wildly changed demographics of inner-city gentrification. You can take the toothless bogan out of Collingwood, but you can't take Collingwood away from the toothless bogan. I have all my teeth plenty of socioeconomic privilege, and a slightly plummy accent, although I don't know where I got that last one. I never went to a private school, and my parents' families were fresh off the boat from Hungary. But who doesn't want to be one of the underdogs? Lots of people. I guess they go for Hawthorne. Like with the trick of religious faith, which I've never mastered, as soon as I was inside the story, as soon as I cared, the game became hypnotic. Collingwood's was the only game I wouldn't miss every week. But I'd watch any of them. Living in the narrative immersion of footy, I found, to my surprise, that I loved it all. Not just the game, but the whole thing, the whole shebang. It shouldn't have come as a surprise. An only child, I've always been a sucker for a sense of belonging. The comforting kinship of groupthink. Giving over to football. Relaxing into the specific obsession of Collingwood and the overriding cultural intoxication of the game turned out to come with double admission layers of belonging, admission to the club, the black and white army, a well-branded cap with 2006 in big letters next to the magpie to prove you weren't coasting on last year's membership fees. This admission gave me a sense of solidarity and fellow feeling with a large new wedge of the world. Beefy guys with coverall tattoos smiled warmly when they saw my branding. I even became less paranoid about holding hands with my girlfriend outside the gay ghetto of the inner north. And the bigger club, the one I'd had my nose pressed up against the glass of since I moved to Melbourne, AFL. I'd just started a new job and office chit-chat became miraculously easy, even sort of enjoyable. There were a few other pies in the office and lots of non-pies who enjoyed hating on us in a good-natured way. Whole significant sections of the media opened up to me. Whole new channels. I didn't even realise how much telly I'd actively ignored until I started to care about it. Now it was all for me. I was in. I wasn't really, but that understanding came later. I remember 2010 as a wonderful year. 
a wonderful thing to be part of. The crackling excitement of the walk to the MCG with all those other people, a black and white stream up Flinders Street. There was a sense of momentum and belief building every week until the pulse racing pinnacle of the big game. Both big games. The second brilliant one we managed to get tickets to. And when the siren rang, Didac keeping his hands on the ball for the big moment. The players had all been playing cold potato for the last two minutes. I looked around the mosh of jubilation in the stands and made accidental eye contact with a boy in the seats in front of us. Young, probably a teenager. He had tears in his eyes. Chances are, I thought, he was born into the game. He wouldn't have been alive for the last premiership win in 1990, but it would have bubbled in his family's collective memory and mythology the undertow of his life. I knew it was sappy, but I felt privileged for a moment to be witnessing this culmination, to have come in at the climax and happy ending of some story. Of course, there are no real endings in footy because there's always the next season. For Collingwood in 2010, there was also the next day. Headlines about an incident involving Collingwood players after the game. I think now that 2010 was the pinnacle of my romance with footy, the end of a heady adolescent genre and the beginning of other types of stories. That young girl in a Richmond apartment building after the grand final, it stayed with me until Anna Krein gave it shape in Night Games. I was utterly persuaded by her depiction of a culture of sexual recklessness and ruthless mateship building. Later still, Collingwood's backman, Heretia Lamumba, complicated the story a bit more. Fractures deep in the structure, contradictions you can't look at too closely if you want to go on cheering. I was married by then to the woman who'd got me into the game. Not married here, of course. We'd blown our savings and gone to San Francisco, said our vows jiggling nervously near the stately bust of Harvey Milk. I'm not an activist, physically, constitutionally. I crumble too easily, can spend days shredding myself up over a perceived insult or something I said wrong. I internalise stupid things. I feel a combination of awe and guilt towards activists, the people who lay themselves out before the world, the tractors, the trolls, the blows that could be meant for me. Heretia Lumumba went public and eventually left the club over an incident involving homophobic graffiti in the locker room. The details were hazy and the outline didn't bear looking at. I know people who live with the contradictions, adept at maintaining irreconcilable loves. I live with one of them. By then I was writing fiction about football. All those intertwining stories, all that blood and pain and passion. You can't buy that kind of narrative grist. And I did still love it. I do. I was pregnant in 2011. And during one particularly fraught finals game against the Hawks, I had to leave the room and eventually the house to go for a walk and calm down. The baby was body slamming painfully and I worried about what the waves of adrenaline were doing to her. But I can't submerge for too long anymore. When the game ends or I push away from it, I hit the surface and wonder what all the fuss was about. Perhaps my submersion therapy wasn't long enough. You have to be dunked from birth to maintain the Orwellian double-think of true belief. The structure of the book I was writing was in place by then, but I think it turned out darker than I intended, although still lighter than the worst genres of the game, my poxy, gnarled love story. My partner and I have a four-year-old daughter now. The week before the grand final, there's footy day at her childcare centre, 
come in your colours. She knows the Collingwood theme song, Beginning to End, and will bust it out at odd, context-free moments. She has had a junior membership since before birth, living the full body submersion I never did, and perhaps in the year that two women's AFL teams played their televised debut at the MCG, I can imagine a different sort of narrative for a woman who grows up in footy. For a woman with gay parents and my doubt is blood in her veins, I wonder how much of her story will be about the game. 